0: Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Co-op. We're celebrating Women's History Month, but today we're going to talk about black women. The theme is Valiant Women of the Vote Refusing to be Silent. And today we have Nina Banks, who is, refuses to be silent. She's one of those valiant women. And she's going to talk a lot about how black women's contribution to the economy has been silenced through the years. They refuse to be silent and yet this history has not been told, has not been brought up. Good morning Dr. Banks. How are you doing this morning?
1: Good morning Mr. Oaks and please call me Nina. I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for having me on your program.
0: Okay, so I've taught Eleven years of my career in in higher education, and I just honor folks that have gone through and gotten their doctorate. So I'll try to call you, Nina, but I really have tremendous respect for that, Dr. Banks, uh, for the for the work and the education and the research that you do, the writing that you do, and so, okay, Nina, I I'm just honored to have you on this morning, and glad that you're taking time out to share some of the research and some of the things that you have been doing in your life. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So let's get right into this invisibility of black women's work. Uh, What got you into this world? What got you to want to study this?
1: I studied this because I'm a feminist economist and feminist economists do work that um, generally focuses on, gender-based disparities, disparities between men and women, um, and feminist economists often focus on the amount of unpaid work that women are performing within the household that disproportionately benefits other household members, cooking, cleaning, caregiving activities. And and I used to use that framework. It's very important. One of the things that feminists have been arguing over the last few decades is that work has a lot of social value. And in a market-based economy, one of the ways that value is assigned is by having a price attached to it. And so feminists have been arguing that if we had a price attached to this unpaid work, then we could kind of quantify the value of it the contribution that women's unpaid work makes to our national output and so for me at some point i started to realize that that household approach doesn't really explain a lot of the unpaid work that black women are doing it didn't it no longer explained the unpaid work that i was doing when i divorced my husband for example Um, So I ended up thinking really critically about that approach and coming up with another approach that really centered the analysis of unpaid work around this long history of African American women who have been doing cooperative unpaid work for our communities. Right. And that's a part of it. The other part of it is that white and black women have different identities as women. And so for white women, racial oppression has not been a part of their experience. But for black women, racial oppression is very much a part of our experience. It shapes our consciousness. And so for, for black women, it's impossible to really separate out our connections to and ties to the community in terms of thinking about um, the work that we do that is, that is unpaid and isn't channeled through a market.
0: Wow, you say a lot. It's That's interesting. So I I get that my mama, who went back to school and graduated when I was 15, magna cum laude, she would go to school, come back and fix us our meals, wash clothes, make us wash the dishes, and then she would go to sleep and get four or five hours of sleep and then get up at 2 o'clock in the morning and study. And she taught me how to do that, which got me through school. But all of that unpaid work of the household, I get, I get really quick with the experience of my mother. Now she was not that involved in these other activities that you talk about. But how do you quantify that? Because you say there's there's social value, but I find that men don't value that this <laughs> work that women do in a household, black or white. Yeah.
1: Yeah, well, and that's that goes to the argument of, you know, having a price tag attached to it. So for the project of quantifying the household work, it's tricky. It's tricky because what has to take place is to find a market equivalent value to the unpaid work in the household. And we can do that. We can think of, you know, laundry services, for example, or daycare services. But what's There are two things that are really tricky about it. One is that a lot of the work that women are doing in the household is multitask. So there are lots of activities that take place simultaneously. That's a challenge then to, you know, kind of quantify that separately. And the other really big part is that the market undervalues the work that women are doing in the paid workplace. And so when we end up with a market value for the unpaid household work, It incorporates this bias, this gender bias that devalues women's contribution to the economy, right? So those are some of the problems that are involved in trying to quantify women's household work. But my analysis is really well beyond that because I end up talking about the work that black women have been doing cooperatively for our communities non-market, unpaid, and then, you know, how to quantify that, which is a much bigger challenge. And I think, you know, when we go through and we talk about this analysis, we could come back to that and talk about why it is probably going to be very difficult but necessary to quantify.
0: Okay, so let's talk about, because I, I need to understand this non-market, unpaid work that black women are doing. What is that kind of work? Give us an example of what what work are you talking yeah,
1: about? Yeah, yeah. So think about it in terms of the household as the easiest example to begin with, right? So we know that the work in the household that women are doing is not compensated. So that's what is meant by unpaid. and household members receive the benefits. There's no market transaction taking place. A market transaction means there's a buyer and a seller. So the household that feminist the household work is unpaid. Non market. The work that black women.
0: Let me just say one more before. So you said that the household receives the benefits. And I argue, and I think you agree with me, but let's see. I argue that society benefits from the woman being in a household because they help to nurture the children. And without the woman in the household nurturing the children, then children can go wild or crazy and all of this stuff. So (laughs) it has not only a value to the household of value to the community this work
1: right and i would qualify what you said just just a little bit tweak it a little okay. bit and say that yeah that that the work that that is performed disproportionately in the household by women has great social value because we want children to be well adjusted and all of that right but i i wouldn't frame it as valuing women within the household because i think you know that the, the feminist argument is that women should have lots of choices right and so what we are not saying is that, that this is an argument for women being in the household. Oh no, no
0: no, 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 no. OK. No, All I was right. just talking about the two values, two va- no, uh, I won't, I won't okay. get into that. No, <laughs> no no, no, I don't agree. It. All right, okay. So now let's go. Okay. We got the household. Black let's go women. to the other.: okay.
1: To the community. OK, so here we go. Our consciousness as black women is tied to a community. our oppression as black women, is based on the oppression that we experience as members of the black community. It's not just about relations between men and women within a private household. So when we talk about black women and oppression and black women and work, we need to broaden it to capture the work that black women have been doing for our community. So I take the analysis all the way back to the late 19th, early 20th century, where Jim Crow segregation was imposed on the African-American community. States put laws um, on the books to segregate facilities, to segregate schools, for example. So by 1900 in the South, Black and white children, black and white young adults were in racially segregated schools. Black schools received less funding in terms of supplies, less funding for for teacher salaries, um, for equipment, for buildings, and so on, right? And so Jim Crow spread in terms of public transportation, recreation, Um, privately owned restaurants and so on. All of these various institutions in the South and eventually in the North, as more black people began to migrate from the South to the North, those institutions in the North also became racially segregated. So what happened by the early 20th century due to racial segregation is that African-Americans had to respond to this exclusion by building their own community institutions, and African-American women played a very prominent role in developing and creating those community institutions. Right. And part of that is a reflection of the fact that black men were experiencing occupational segregation. If they had a college degree, it was very difficult for them to get a professional job. Black women were able, who also experienced, right, occupational segregation, but black women were able to get jobs as teachers and nurses. And so those are are fields that enabled black women to provide services to the community. And then the other part of it is that African-Americans have a cooperative ethos, and so black women were often, I think, especially middle-class black women. And, and, and the research that I'm doing is research that was developed by African-American historians and sociologists, right? But they, they've established that black women had a sense of social obligation to the community.
0: So black women are working in a household not getting paid and not having value added to it Well, any woman in a household for that matter. But then there's this social part that they end up playing and spending time and effort in to help their men, their children, their community. All right. And we have a minute before we take our, our break. So can you give me an example of that in the early 1900s of what, what are you talking about and what were black women doing? What kind of,
1: Yeah, think about this in terms of the club women's movement. We've always been thinking about it as racial uplift and betterment, right? But my argument is that we need to think about the actual work that went into all of those cooperative efforts on the part of, of black women. And so one example is the Atlanta Neighborhood Union that was formed in 1908. And I wrote about this in my article. This is a group of, of middle-class women who came together. Um, cooperatively right they're coming together and they were trying to figure out the needs of their community
0: thank you and i would like to come back after the break and talk about the atlanta neighborhood union and what they were doing and how this all helped the community and they were not giving any value not giving any money we'll be right back please don't touch that down Women's History Month. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. The program is Everything Cooperative, and we have Dr. Nina Banks as our guest today. Uh, she wants me to call her Nina, but I just get so excited about this doctor she has and the work that she's doing, the research that she's doing. And before the break, last section we talked about how women do not get credit and do not put the men, particular white men that runs the economy, do not put any value to the work that they do. In the household. And they do not give value for what black women have done outside of the household to help with the racism that the black community has experienced, particularly during Jim Crow starting about the 1900s. And right before we took break, Dr. Bank Nina, was talking about the Atlanta Neighborhood Union as an example of these what she called Club Women's Movement. So, Nina, would you please tell us more about what they were doing in Atlanta, what this group of women were doing and the value that it brought to not only the black community but the U.S. economy?
1: Uh, okay, so let me let me focus on because uh, that U.S. economy is a big question, and we can unpack that one later. Let me start with some of these examples of this really important community work, going back to the Atlanta Neighborhood Union. So this is a group of mem- middle-class women um, in Atlanta who were really concerned about the lack of services for this growing um, impoverished African American population in the city. So they formed in 1908, and what they began to do is to collect data on the needs of the community. What were the problems that they were facing in trying to you know, live in Atlanta? And again, think about this in the context of the city officials were neglecting, the white city officials were neglecting the, the black population. And so they collected data, and then they began to actually... You know, pull together services for the community, health services, health clinics, services for school children in terms of um, after school programs. Um, They called attention to dilapidated housing, um, the need for playgrounds for black children, educational services. And again, here's my point. There was a lot of work that went into doing all of that organizing and fundraising. Um, And that eventually You talk about the benefits There are benefits to the African American community Certainly But but it also uh, meant that eventually City officials took on this work They were also calling attention to Issues of um, Sewage right i mean a whole host of issues and this is just one of many examples in the early part of the 20th century there are lots of examples during the the great depression for example the housewives league of detroit
0: wait wait, i just want to before we move from atlanta so you've got these middle class women uh in atlanta black women who come together to say hey we're not getting services in our community those the same kinds of services we talk about today educational housing health environmental things like it like sewage so they're collecting data on this and then presenting it to the white elected officials to get these services or they go out yeah. and create their own companies they do both right because
1: this is just one example of, of black women's cooperative efforts on behalf of the community. We see this, you know, going on in the early part of the 20th century across the country where Black women are engaged in these fundraising campaigns. They are creating orphanages and kindergartens and libraries, right? They're doing a lot of unpaid, non-market work that had value for the community, right? And you You hit the nail on the head when you said that we think about these things today, and that's my point, is that this is an unbroken tradition for African-American women. We have a long history of doing work that has been viewed as uplift, and even when... Because um, I am not the first person to refer to this as community work or unpaid labor. What I'm doing as an economist is theorizing this within an intersectional feminist political economy framework. That's my contribution, right, to frame it as work Right. That is every bit as important as the unpaid work that goes on within a private household and also to situate it from a theoretical standpoint in the context of the formal workplace, the firm. Right. So I want to make that very clear. I'm not the first person to call it unpaid work. Right. But lots of examples of of, of what they are doing. And I can give you more.
0: Okay, so I just really need to unpack this last several sentences that you made because I don't quite get it, and I want to make sure I get it and the other people out there get it, is that I get that you're not the first one, and I'm okay with that, but I'm more interested in you distinguish that there's unpaid work in the household that's no value in it, and then you go into there's unpaid work in the community. So in the community, in the black community, that these – black women have in this case there were middle class women have said look at our community of all of the things that we don't have we don't have for our children we don't have for our families and we need these things and then they once they have identified and collected the data then they go about making sure these services are made by creating a business to do housing or health or putting clinics together orphanages so they Create these businesses and or they get the elected white elected officials to put some of that tax dollars into helping to solve these issues. Yeah, that summarize it? Yeah. That's what you
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's it. That's it. And right. And so and again, my point is there's a long history of that that we haven't been thinking about as unpaid work. Right. We've been thinking about it in a political context. Let me give you a quote from Du Bois, which I think is really revealing. Um, This is a quote from 1924 um, from W.E.B. Du Bois, who talked about the importance, um, but the invisibility of this work that black women were doing, which he viewed as the most effective work in the nation that provided social uplift to the vulnerable, quote, The women of America who are doing humble, but on the whole, the most effective work in the social uplift of the lowly, not so much by money, but as by personal contact, are the colored women. Little is said or known about it, but in thousands of churches and social clubs in missionary societies and fraternal organizations. In unions like the National Association of Colored Women, these workers are founding and sustaining orphanages and old folk homes, distributing personal charity and relief, visiting prisoners, helping hospitals, teaching children, and ministering to all sorts of needs. So that was 1924 by Du Bois. Right. And so it speaks to the importance of black women's grassroots efforts on behalf of the community, where he said little is better known. And that is still the case.
0: Invisible. Wow. OK, so I I, I have as invisible as, and you're saying you're refusing for this to continue to be invisible, refusing to be silent about it. Uh, and I get that you're one of these valiant women out here that you're, you're bringing light to this. You're doing the research and writing the papers. It's interesting to me that white folk, white men, don't value women's work, don't value black people's work. They saw us as slaves and don't give us anything or little as possible. Even when they try to say, well, we fed you and we housed you, yeah. Gave us the scraps off the tables and put us in shanties, so they didn't value our work. And so this, to me, is just a continuation of that non-valuing of work. And you're, you're putting some light to that. You're refusing to. Yeah, be and
1: and it. and what I would say again to qualify what you said, and I agree with with everything that you said, is that it's not just white men, but also white women. And so when we're talking about black women, we can never leave out the role of white women. In helping to maintain and reproduce a system of racialized patriarchy and racial capitalism, right? White women have been very instrumental in exploiting black women's labor for their own benefit. Right. So this invisibility is is, I think, tied to the fact that white people have always viewed black women as workers and not respected black women for the caregiving activities that we give to our own families. White people think about black women as workers and the work that black women can perform for white people that'll benefit white people. But but white people, white men and women have been unconcerned about the work and the caregiving activities that black people perform for black people. Mm-hmm. Right? That's a part of it. And then the other part of what makes this unseen is this cooperative ethos that we have the sense of social obligation to our community and so for many black women performing these activities black women think of it as service to the community think about black women in churches black women see it as a as a service and not
0: as work so we're going to take our second break here nina (laughs) hey and I want to come back and talk about this. You mentioned cooperative ethos several times. So I want to come back and talk about that. You have mentioned churches and unions and different organizations that black women have, have done this work in. And white folk, uh, men and women, don't, don't put any value to this. We'll be right back to talk more about this with Dr. Banks. Please don't touch that down. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative, and we have Dr. Nina Banks talking about women, particularly black women, and the contributions that black women have made in the household and in the community. Nina, you have mentioned cooperative ethos several times. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, what I mean is that African Americans have tended to think collectively right around the benefits to the community whereas Europeans and euro Americans tend to think on a more individualistic basis that's not the history of African Americans and I and this of course goes back to West and Central African ways of thinking. That wasn't lost in the transatlantic slave trade. Africans and their African American descendants here in North America continue to think cooperatively, right? Our family structures are extended. We have strong family ties and community ties. So that's what I mean when I say cooperative ethos. And I, and the you know and really important work of people that you've brought onto this program, I think, um, is a testament to that long tradition of cooperative ethos. The really important research that Jessica Gordon Nemhart excavated is a great example of this long tradition of cooperative ethos that African Americans have always instituted.
0: So I'm glad you brought up Dr. Nemhart. Jessica has been on the show about four times, and she's taught me a lot about this history that you talk about. That's why I wanted to go back to this cooperative ethos that we brought this over. A lot of West Africa is just a way of being, and I, I have it. The center part of, of humanity is uh, how do we work together? If you go back to the tribes and and the, the clans, it was Nina had her job and Vernon had his jobs and the kids had their jobs and the old folks had their jobs. Everybody had their job to do. They had their tasks. And the whole community depended on that. And this is cooperativism. This is collective way of thinking. Same thing with governance. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I I do have that, too, as a way of – and how we could be a slaves. With crumbs, they would throw us the crumbs that was left over from the table, and we would pull it together and come up with churches and historically black colleges mm-hmm. and universities. And mm-hmm. as you said, these, the women in Atlanta, and you started to go to the women in uh, Michigan, Detroit, of how we put things together and solve community problems. Yeah, and that's what I was told is what politicians is all about, or should be about. Is how to, and this is definitely what cooperatives are about: how to solve community problems. Mm -hmm. So you have found this cooperative ethos, and so I have it that you do work in cooperatives. A lot of your work is fits into what we talk about here. I would like to then go a little bit. You mentioned Atlanta. Can you talk about the work that was done in Detroit and the women, and what was that group called?
1: Yeah, that was called the Housewives League of Detroit, the Housewives League of Detroit. And so they formed during the Great Depression. And again, as a group of women who are concerned about the really severe impact that that the Depression was having on the African-American community, because it was more severe in terms of job losses and loss of black businesses, small black businesses. It was devastating. And so they were ingenious. These women came up with a campaign to try to keep the money and the resources within the African-American community in in terms of ways of stabilizing black businesses and black employment by having a campaign to, um, you know, support black businesses and even white businesses as long as they hired black workers. So the Housewives League of Detroit ended up spreading to, I think, about 25 other cities across the United States entirely run by black women who were volunteers. And again, my point is, there was work that went into that. Let me give you another really important example. The AKA sorority, also in the Great Depression, operated, and I think it was the first mobile health unit within the United States. They recognized that rural black people in the Mississippi Delta were without health services. And so the AKAs mobilized this massive campaign to get uh, health services to black people, poor, impoverished black people in the Mississippi Delta. And they did that from 1935 until 1942. It was called the Mississippi Health Project. Um, They provided immunizations and health screenings and health information to African-Americans who were not getting services, right, as today, right? We're always left out. And so the AKA mobilized an effort And uh, the person who has documented these activities for the A.K.A., the historian, her name is Marjorie Holloman Parker, described this as, quote, an experiment in cooperative community service between the sorority, the local health profession, and other official health department workers, end of quote, right? So another really good example of this work.
0: So my sister's A.K.A.'s. 1935 to 1942, provided this health services, mobile health in Mississippi. So I have you talking about what happened in the Great Depression, and I see it's the same thing with COVID-19. Because we have the same issues, and it's, and it's, it's almost it's too bad that this mobile health unit didn't last longer. We could still use it today, whether it's Mississippi or Detroit or Los Angeles, Anywhere, rural or urban, we still need those services today in our community.
1: And that's the tragedy, right? Because African-American men and women are, are cooperative and we are very creative, right? We focus on the larger need. So I think about Linda Gordon has a piece that, that compares the activities of black and white women who were, so, who, were, who were engaged in social work types of efforts in the early part of the 20th century. And the vision of the black women who were social workers was very progressive. And, you know, and her argument is if the black women's vision had been put into place in the United States, a lot of the problems that we are dealing with today as a society in terms of disparities, health and environmental disparities and so on, we wouldn't be thinking about because black women were always at the forefront of thinking cooperatively in ways that would benefit the larger community in terms of the provision of programs on a universal basis rather than on a means-tested type of basis. But I guess I'm getting off track there a little bit.
0: No, no, that's right on track. So I I, I want to switch a little bit. But how did you get into this? What's your background that would cause you to get into the study what the contributions of black women have been in the household and in the community. How did you get here? Yeah,
1: yeah. I went to graduate school, and I ended up, you know, economics is a really hard discipline. And, you know, you go through all kinds of hoops. I mean, it's hard in terms of the math requirements. And so I had gone through all of the hoops. It was time to write a dissertation, and I really came to the realization that I didn't think that I had to prove anything to anybody anymore but myself. Now, that wasn't true, but that's what I thought. And so what I realized is that I had you know, all these years of education on white people, Europeans and Euro-Americans, and I knew very little bit about African-Americans, and so I decided that I was going to write a dissertation on the African-American women who were important in my life, in my history, in the history of my people. And so I started looking, and again, this issue of, of work that's not valued. So I started looking at the work of black women who were domestic workers, the washerwomen who helped to sustain our community because of discrimination against black men that made their earnings irregular. But there was also really good work done in economics by Mary King on that topic. So I ended up reading literature by these amazing African-American women historians and sociologists and eventually came to the realization that there were some questions on black women in the Great Migration that I could answer. And that work was unpaid community work. I didn't frame it that way at that time. I used a different theoretical lens, but that's how I ended up focusing on this work i'm interested in i've always been interested in the work that people do ordinary people do to sustain their um their families and their communities and that's
0: what brought me to this so you said all of this education give us a quick snippet of what educa- where did you where did you grow up where, where did you graduate from college da 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 da
1: Sure. I grew up in a uh, small town in Pennsylvania called Chambersburg. I went to a women's college in Maryland, Hood College. Um, It's co-ed now, but it was a women's college. I had a spectacular education there. I studied history and economics and sociology, Uh, decided to go into economics because there are so few black people in economics compared to history and sociology. There are more. There aren't a lot, but there are more went to graduate school at the University of Massachusetts Amherst because I wanted to be in an environment that um, provided lots of different approaches to understanding economics. And that that's what UMass Amherst did. There are about five universities in the country that have what we call heterodox approaches. It's not just the mainstream economics that focuses on markets. UMass Amherst provided education in socialist uh, programs, for example, right? I mean, so, so it's just really rich and interesting. It was because it was multidimensional. Um, so I got a doctorate degree from UMass Amherst, and I did research that was archival since I knew in order to, to be able to do research the voices of African-American women that have been silenced, I would need to do archival research. And so I I did it, and that experience was wonderful because it it really prepared me for to do the type of archival work that I have been doing since 2003 on Sadie Alexander, who is the first African-American economist People had thought that she had given up her interest in economics after she wasn't able to practice and she became a lawyer. And I went to the archives at Penn. I excavated her life as, a, as an economist when I realized that, that she, in fact, had continued to think about economic issues and to practice economics in the public realm. So that has been my career within economics.
0: So we used to mean archival. What I get from that, let me, let me see if I get it. You can go to the library, to the stacks, to history. You're not researching people today and giving out surveys and analyzing that and seeing what that comes. You're going to the history books or articles and magazines, and then you do the research there. That's what you mean by archival.
1: Uh, what I mean are primary sources. So, yeah, they are often housed. Sometimes they're connected to a library. Um, The archives that I went to for my dissertation were at the University of Pittsburgh. They have an archives of the Industrial Society. And so I studied papers, documents from from the Pittsburgh Urban League to do the research on Sadie Alexander. Her family donated a huge amount of papers. To the University of Pennsylvania archives, 81 boxes of, of materials that span this incredible woman's lifetime. And so it means going through primary documents, correspondence, personal letters, um, just a
0: huge amount of
1: information.
0: So we're going to our last break. Dr. Banks. I'm Nina, we're going to our last break, and when we come back out of the break, I'd really like to talk about what you have learned from these archives, uh, what you've learned from your study, how it applies today. When you look at these women that work in both the household and in society, how can we use that cooperative ethos to help us come out of And maybe change the economy, come out of this coronavirus uh, where we have a new norm, not go back to the same old way we've been doing things. That's what I really like to talk about. If you think about it, we'll come back uh, right after the break and talk about that. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. Uh, this program is sponsored by the National Cooperative Bank. NCB has been our sponsor for the seven and a half years we've been on the show. NCB's mission is to support and be an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, especially Nina in low-income communities, and that's where we find a lot of black communities are in a low income, and they've been doing a A fantastic job of providing innovative financial and related services. So, before we took the break, I mean, this 45 minutes have gone by really quick because you've talked about women whose work has been silent, black women, particularly in the household and in the community. And in this first month that we were on the show, Nina, I had a guy from Senegal, Papa Sin. And he said co-ops are formed to solve community problems. If there's no community problem, there's no need for a co-op. And this is what black folks brought from West Africa and Central Africa is how you can pool resources, work collectively, and solve community problems, whether they're health or housing or education. And this huge wealth gap that we have that helps to increase these problems in the black community, we have very little money to go to it. So, what do you see? we can do collectively today that will help us come out of COVID nineteen? We're—I have five pandemics we're working in. Really, six: COVID nineteen, uh, racism, climate change, poor economy. We got all these murders going on, which is five, and then there's stupidity. Okay, that people do not give out this information. And they want to say all of the wrong things that uh, too many people in politics say the wrong things to keep them in power and keeping them having the money. So what can we do with the research that you have that black women particularly have been doing in the household and in the community to help us out of this COVID-19?
1: Okay, great question, Vernon, and a really big, I think, question as well. Um, and yeah. I think to go back to the earlier point about the archival research, that's the importance of maintaining records and documenting our really important history, our really important rich history and important history of work that we haven't been thinking of as work in this, in this case. You talked about poverty, right, and all of these crises that we're going through. And you said five crises. We are always in a state. The African-American community is always in a state of crisis. And you're absolutely right. These five crises that you've identified, right, you know, it's, it's exacerbated um, this constant state of crises that, that we are in. Black women today have been very active in performing unpaid community work in the environmental and food justice movement. And so that I think about in the context of your point about poverty because so many of the disparities that we are dealing with are tied to living in racially segregated impoverished communities in terms of the health effects of not having access to whole foods healthy foods or the contaminants um the toxins that are dumped into our communities right and again black women have been at the forefront of performing unpaid community work to address those problems how do we address it we deal with the disparities as a society and when i say we here i mean this nation needs to tackle all of those different crises that you just identified instead of leaving it to black women to pick up the burden that's why the approach that i'm calling for is that we have to see this as work And then once we see it and document it, we need to find a way to quantify it. Because quantifying it in a market-based economy, right, quantifying it means assigning a market value so that we can assess the contribution of this um, important work to our national output, to gross domestic product. But what is really tricky about this unpaid non-market work that black women are disproportionately performing is, as you said, it's in response to not just unmet needs, but also harm and threat to our community. Right. To these disparities that are that are tied to things that are negative. So on the one hand, then we have to be able to assign a market value and we can figure that out and do that. But. And this is the really critical point is that once we figure out the, you know, quantify the value, it ends up being subtracted from national output, right, because these are community harms. And so we need to think more broadly about national output in the context of well-being. Gross domestic product is a value of our national output, the final goods and services that are produced. But we need a better indicator that also assesses human welfare. And so one example is the genuine progress indicator. And the genuine progress indicator then subtracts harms to society. It would subtract the effect of depletion of of environmental resources. And so if we're looking at what black women are producing collectively, they are producing collective goods that benefit large numbers of people. That's what a collective good is. You can't exclude people. So the entire black community would benefit from racial justice. It means that we can't Quantify that properly because you can't put a monetary value on racial justice. So whatever number we get is an underestimate of the true value. But then the other point that I'm making is that the work that I'm talking about in response to community threats and harms means that we have to address those harms. And so when we quantify it, we subtract it from the value of GDP. How do we solve the problem? We solve the problem by dealing with our economy that is not working for the vast majority of people in our country. We need a society that is inclusive. And I guess the other point that I want to make before we run out of time is that my analysis is built on the lived experience of African-American women, but it applies to the experiences of other racialized women in the United States because we see that indigenous women and Mexican-American women and Asian-American women have been also engaged in this type of unpaid collective work on behalf of their communities indigenous women in other countries have been collectively performing unpaid work to challenge disparities Dalit women in india have been doing this work so what i'm calling for is a completely different paradigm for thinking about unpaid work that women perform that is inclusive of the lives of Racially marginalized women and women who are marginalized by their caste and their class, perhaps sexual identity, a whole host of of um, ways in which women have been
0: marginalized. Wow, that is phenomenal. So I have it that is very difficult for people in power to put value on black folks work and particular black women's work. So you're talking about putting value to it. That's an uphill battle. And then you really expanded this and I'm glad you did that marginalized people around the world face the same stuff and women around the world have been addressing it because women are nurturing, they they wanna take care of their children and they they want them to have successful and whole lives as my mom and my wife and my children with my grandchildren They're all wanting to make sure that there is an environment that is wholesome for their children to grow up in. And there's value. Yeah, got it. How do we get that value known, appreciated, and it's around the world? It's not just here. It's not just black women, although you're looking at that and doing the archival research, going to the stacks, finding out about it. I don't know how we can support you in your work, but i really like to keep track of it. Really like to understand it and help to put it out there because it's invaluable. <laughs> okay, thank you. It's hard to put a value on it.
1: Thank you, thank you. Um, do you want me to give you a recent example of, of you know what yes. we do to shine a light on this? Absolutely. A, a lawyer contacted me in response to the New York Times profile on my work. Um, and he congratulated me. This is a Washington, D.C. lawyer. And he talked about a case that he's involved with in Delaware where there's a coalition um, for education reform that was focused on the, the, really the dumping of, of black children, especially black boys, into a special ed program. And so the profile that I read on, on this lawyer quantified his pro bono work to the tune of about a million dollars over several years. And then I asked him, I said, was the Coalition for Education Reform, did it include black people? And he said it was all black women. This is what I'm talking about. So we see his work, the lawyer, but what we don't see is the unpaid, non-market work of all of these black moms who did the work to bring attention to this harm done to our children.
0: Fantastic. That is a way of leaving this. There is a lot of work to be done today to get us out of this pandemics that we're in. I really appreciate your work and I appreciate you for what you're doing. Thank you for educating me. Everybody out there, I know in your communities and your churches, your sororities, unions, you're doing this work. Keep doing it. We need it done. Nina, uh, I'm thinking you should run for president of the United States too, but that's a whole (laughs) other subject.
1: I love it. My son said the same thing to me
0: several years ago. So there you go. All right. There we go. I'm with him
1: for having me on your show.
0: And please, everybody out there, we'll see you next Thursday. Please live cooperatively. Thank you.